When considering how the existence of evil is compatible with the existence of an all-powerful and all-good God, monotheists have produced several concepts that they think provides a solution. God allows evil because he wants free-willed beings, and God allows evil because it is necessary for spiritual maturity. However, while these theodicies help answer the problem of evil, they leave many people still wondering why God wanted the world to turn out this way. So in this episode, to strive for a more satisfying answer, I'm going to discuss what the Bible has to say about the existence of evil. To do this, I'm going to survey what the Bible has to say on God's purpose for creating, God's plan for humanity, and the results of the fall. Reviewing these biblical concepts will help show why God allows evil now and how we can find hope in our suffering. So I hope you'll stick around and discover how God's plans for humanity make sense of why we see so much evil in our world. Welcome back, everyone. In this episode, we are going to be talking about the Bible and evil. Over the last couple episodes, the last couple lectures, we've been talking about the problem of evil. Uh, two episodes ago, I talked about the problem of evil. I broke down the logical and the evidential problems of evil, and I talked about how professional philosophers have argued that uh, if God is all-powerful, all-good, and all-knowing, then evil shouldn't exist. So if evil does exist in our world, it's evidence that God doesn't exist. Um, and the episode after that, I talked about theodicies, which are, which are answers to the problem of evil that monotheists have come up over the years that try to explain why uh, evil is compatible with an all-knowing, all-powerful, uh, and all-good God. Well, in this episode, um, I'm going to talk about what the Bible has to say about evil because I think the Bible is um, has a more comprehensive answer to the issue. You know, everything we've covered so far, the theodicies we talked about, those are great. But I think the, uh, when, you, when you look at the Bible and see what it has to say about why evil is here and uh, look at some of the things the Bible has to say about why God created and what God's plans are for humanity, it really uh, helps bring out uh, more of an explanation as to why there's evil now. And I think there's also some good pastoral things that we can bring from all this to help people when they're going through suffering. So anyways, that's what we're talking about in this lecture. So I'm excited about it. I hope it really rounds out our discussion on uh, the problem of evil. So uh, like I do at the beginning of all these, I like to uh, read off a Bible passage. Today our Bible passage doesn't talk about evil. In the next couple lectures we're going to be moving on to faith and reason. And uh, I think I'm going to, the, the series is going to end, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking about adding uh, an extra episode that I wasn't planning on doing to the very end of it to talk about the gospel and some basic things about Christianity. Uh, just for those who, who don't know what to do with the, what I, everything that we talked about in the series. But the next couple lectures are going to be over faith and reason and scientism. So it's going to be talking about issues that are going to be touched on in this verse I'm talking about today. Um, 
And usually, if you are familiar with this series, uh, you know that whenever I first uh, present a uh, Bible passage, I usually read the same Bible passage every couple uh, every couple lectures. And the first time I read it, I go in depth in it. Well, this today, I think I'm going to save some of that for the next episode. Uh, so uh, the my point in this uh, in this lecture won't be lost, and and we can talk about that more and really bring that into the whole lecture. But anyways, uh, the, the, my verse for this lecture is Hebrews 11, 1 through 2. So it comes from Hebrews 11, 1 through 2. And this verse says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by this our ancestors were approved. And um, in, the, you know, in the next couple of lectures, I'm going to be talking about faith and reason and how science uh, goes into all that debate. Uh, so I think this is a great verse to use. It, it this really when we when we break this down, uh, we'll really see what the biblical definition of what faith is, and it helps us make some good distinctions when we're talking about uh, what is faith and what is reason. So, um, and some of the things I'm going to focus on are some of the 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 Greek words and what we think they mean whenever. Uh, especially when it says faith is the reality. I'm going to focus on that word reality. I'm going to focus on the word proof and, uh, and, and verse 2 where it says that their ancestors were approved. So uh, I look, I'm looking forward to that uh, lecture, and I hope I'll see you there. Um, but uh, let's move on to our questions for reflection for this lecture. I've got a few of them, and as always, if you would like to comment on these, if you're watching this in a video, please com- make comments in the comment section, or uh, or if you're listening to this on a podcast, uh, know you can still interact with me on, on these or just anything else, any other questions you have about the series, um, you can go to my uh, academic website, bkylekeltz.com. There's a contact uh link you can click on and it'll send an email directly to me. So I'd love to hear from you guys. But here's our questions for reflection, some things you can be thinking about while we're going through this material. First one is, what did you think of the soul-making theodicy? That's something we talked about in our last lecture. Two, after learning about the various theodicies, do you have any questions left over why God would allow evil? And the last one for this lecture is, uh, three, some people think God doesn't exist because bad things are happening right now. How does the fall of Adam and Eve explain why bad things are happening today? So, yes, we're going to be covering this question in particular, and I'd love to hear some of your feedback uh, if you have comments on those other questions. But uh, like I mentioned, in the last couple lectures, we've been talking about the problem of evil, right? And uh, if, if you've just tuned in on this episode... Uh, I've defined the problem of evil as the difficulty of reconciling the existence of suffering and other evils in the world with the existence of God, right? The problem of evil is this question of, it's this tension that exists within theism, the idea that there's this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God who created and sustains the world. Uh, Over the centuries, people have questioned, well, if God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, then why does he allow bad things to happen in the world? Because we see evil things happening. We see people dying from hurricanes, uh, but we also see people from killing each other, uh, choosing to hurt each other. So this doesn't, a lot of people don't think that this is the kind of world you would see if if it was created and sustained by an all-powerful and all-good God, right? And what we looked at specifically in the last couple episodes 
is uh, what's called the logical problem of evil and the evidential problem of evil. These are uh, terms that, that come out of the professional study of the philosophy of religion in Western philosophy. The logical problem of evils uh, I've got defined as the formulation of the problem of evil that attempts to show that given the existence of evil, theism is illogical. The evidential problem of evil is defined as the formulation of the problem of evil that attempts to show that given the amount of evil in the world, theism is unreasonable. So uh, professional atheists, when I say that, I mean like um, philosoph- uh, philosophy professors who who uh, do philosophy for a living and write uh, journal articles on the problem of evil in the philosophy of religion. Uh, professional atheists have, have made formulated these arguments. The logical problem of evil basically says that uh, monotheism is internally incoherent. Uh, it, it holds to beliefs that contradict each other, so monotheism should be rejected. Um, because uh, some uh, atheist philosophers have argued that if God is all-powerful and all-good, then there shouldn't be evil. So monotheism entails a contradiction. The evidential problem of evil is this uh, is this formulation of the argument. It doesn't necessarily say that, um, that monotheism is internally incoherent because it allows that God could, an all-good, all-powerful God could allow evil to occur for some good reason. Uh, but then the evidential problem points at evil in the world and says there's certain types of suffering and and evils that we see that don't seem to have a good reason for them. We can't imagine a reason why God would allow this kind of suffering. But not only do we see stuff like that, but we also see a lot of it. So the evidential problem of evil is a more empirical argument stating that, for one, we think we see evil in the world that a good God, a good all-powerful God wouldn't allow and two, we think we see a lot of it. So uh, the evidential problem of evil says that monotheism is more than likely false. It's probably not true based on the amount of evil. Okay, and we covered theodicies, right? We talked about the greater good defense, the free will defense, the natural order defense, the soul-making theodicy, and skeptical theism. All of these are attempts to provide reasons for why uh, monotheists think that God would allow evil to occur in the world. Um yeah, so, and I talked about a distinction between theodicies, defenses. On my slides, I've got a theodicy defined as the attempt to justify God's permitting evil to occur in the world. When you dig into the philosophy of religion, you see that uh, philosophers of religion make a distinction between a theodicy, which is a more comprehensive answer, a more comprehensive attempt to uh, basically explain the whole reason why God allows evil. Then some uh, philosophers talk about what's called a, a defense, and that's just the attempt to show that it's logically uh, God's existence, uh, an all-good, all-powerful God is logically compatible with the existence of evil in the world that he created and sustains. So a defense just a defense is weaker. It just tries to show that there's no logical contradiction between uh, God existing and evil existing. A theodicy not only shows why it's logically compatible, but also tries to answer why God does that, okay? And while I, and don't take me to be saying that the, any of these things that we talked about, so yeah, the greater good defense, well, your free will defense says that God allows evil to occur because he wants a world with uh, free will creatures in it, right? He makes He wants to make a world with human beings in it who have free will for various reasons, but if, he, if he's making free will beings, it logically follows that he has to allow them to do what they want with their free will. If He can't force them to only do good things because then they wouldn't have free will, right? So that's the free will defense. 
the natural order defense. There's there's several ways of going about it, but uh, what we talked about with that one was saying that God needs to uh, any world that God is going to make is going to be finite because only God is 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 infinite and infinitely perfect, right? Any world that He's going to make is going to be finite and have a limited amount of resources. Uh, so he's, he needs to order that world with uh, in a way that's going to help uh, maximize the goodness in that world, given that it's uh, finite and has limited resources. Um, if, if you're interested in what we talked about, I've talked about it for a long time in the last lecture, so I recommend you going back to that if you want to look at this. Uh, but with a finite world uh, ordered with natural laws, you're just going to have... Uh, um, bad things happening. Uh, we talked about this in the last one. There's, there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, but the natural order defense, oh, and another another part of the natural order defense is that God would want to make an orderly, uh, regular world, right? God would, it would make sense for, if God wants to um, talk to or, or reveal himself to uh, human beings, it would it would only make sense for him to have a, a world governed by these natural laws, these regularities, uh, because if the world is just really random and crazy, then when God tries to talk to humanity, they're not going to be able to tell God's voice from any other of the, the weird things that they see all the time. So it makes sense that God would make a world with regularities, things that we would interpret as natural laws, because that way, whenever he raises Jesus from the dead, which usually doesn't happen, or he he talks to us from a burning bush, which usually never happens. We know that something's up because that's not how the world works. So something supernatural is happening. Well, anyways, uh, and when you have natural order like that, you're going to have the natural evils that we see, like tornadoes and earthquakes and things like that. If that sounds crazy, go back to the last lecture and you'll see what I'm talking about. Some people have talked about a soul-making defense where God allows evil because you can't have spiritual maturity. Maybe God wants spiritually mature beings but you can't have spiritual maturity, right? If, if you just make a paradise, you're going to end up with a bunch of spoiled brats. They're just all these beings that were just accustomed to living in a perfect world. So maybe God allows evil because you can't have uh, some things like bravery, uh, um, compassion, and, and, also, and, and all sorts of other things like that. You can't have things like that if there aren't any bad things going on. And then one thing we looked at was something called skeptical theism, which is just the idea that uh, because we are uh, because we are finite beings and we don't we're not all knowing we're not omniscient. We just at the end of the day we just don't have access to why uh, God does what He does. So um, in any given case, we can't necessarily say that we know for sure. Uh, that God had no reason for allowing some evil to occur. For, for all we know, since God is all-knowing, uh, he does have a good reason for allowing some evil to occur, even though we can't see it at this given time. Well, anyways, uh, one thing, I, I love all these. I love all these. If you listen to the last lecture, hopefully you found some of those really satisfying. But at the end of the day, I still just think that leaves open this question of, well, why did, but why, you know, why did God do all this? And, and why does he want this world uh, the way it is? Even, even, you know, even granting that it's all logically uh, compatible. Why is he doing this? Um, you know, especially if you've known people that have experienced suffering, which well, I'm sure we all have. Uh, a lot of people are still 
wondering, and, and they even mention this in the literature and philosophy of religion, that they'll make a distinction between a pastoral answer to evil and a, and a logical answer to evil. Because when we talk about all these things, right, you're not really going to sit there and go walk someone through the natural order defense if they're struggling with, you know, why they just lost a loved one, right? You're probably not going to do that. It would be pretty silly. Um, but, you know, uh, and, and maybe even what we're going to be talking about today with the Bible and evil, maybe this isn't going to be something that's going to help somebody while they're suffering. Uh, but I think even maybe it will, though, what the Bible has to say. Maybe this will help some people. But also what the Bible has to say about why God is allowing evil today, I think it uh, it will you can draw some things from that, that that can maybe help people while they're going through evil, uh, excuse me, while they're going through suffering. So that's what we're covering today. And uh, the way we're going to do it is we are going to look at what the Bible has to say about three main things. Uh, God's purpose for creating, God's plan for humanity, and the results of the fall. I think when we when we look at what the Bible has to say about these three things, God's purpose for creating, why did he create in the first place? God's plan for humanity, what is humanity's role in this creation, and the results of the fall. When, when human beings sinned and were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, how does that affect uh, the world, and how does that affect God's plans, and what does that mean for our role in, in creation now, and what does that mean for why we why the way the world is the way it is today, and where are we going? You know, look at the plan for God's purpose for creating, God's plans for humanity. You, you ask, you know, where are we going? And, and I think when we look at what the Bible has to say about these things, it's really going to help us uh, pull together an answer to why the world is the way it is today and what our role is in that and how we can help each other and encourage each other and find hope through suffering, okay? So the first thing we want to look at is God's purpose for creating, like I said. Uh, it's really interesting if you look through the Bible, and I'm going to be showing, I'm going to be making recommendations uh, for books on biblical theology. Uh, if um, I, I love reading biblical theology in my free time. You know, I'm usually doing philosophy, but I love reading uh, systematic theology. I love reading biblical theology, uh, especially biblical theology is really interesting. You know, systematic theology is where um, uh, theologians ask questions like, uh, what is a human being or, or, or how is the world made? And then they look all throughout the Bible and they look in, in the world and they try to put all these things together and, and, and figure out doctrines uh, using the Bible that way. Well, biblical theology is less of asking a question of the Bible, and instead biblical theology is where theologians read the Bible and try to figure out what is the Bible trying to tell me? What are, what kind of patterns do I see throughout all these stories? Or, or sometimes they look at singular books and say, what is this this one book trying to teach me? So uh, some really interesting things have come out of biblical theology, and that's where I got some of these uh, concepts. So when we're asking, why did God create anything at all? Like, what's his purpose for creating? When you look at what the Bible has to say about this, you there's a lot of passages that talk about why God created. Uh, some of them are more direct than others. But what you find is you find two biblical patterns. You find that a lot of these verses say that God created things for his glory. God creates things for his glory. And a second thing that you'll find is that the, the Bible is trying to say that the things that God creates display his glory. 
So we see two biblical patterns. One is that God creates things for his glory, and two things God creates display his glory. And I wanted to show you uh, some passages. There's there's more than what I've listed here uh, on my slide. I was going to I was going to look at passages from the Old and the New Testament. And what I'm saying is there's more than what I have listed here, but these are some ones I wanted to emphasize. I've got more on my slide than I was actually going to read. So I was just going to go ahead and mention these to you so you could examine some of these. Uh, for my old the Old Testament, I wanted to emphasize Isaiah chapter 43, verses 5 through 7. Uh, Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 through 11. And Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 8 through 10. In the New Testament, you can see verses like this. And these are verses talking about, these are verses showing that God creates things for his glory. In the New Testament, you see it in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, and 9 through 10. And you see it in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, and Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. I'm going to walk you through a couple of these, read them out loud, uh, just to give you an idea and then we're going to move on to the next point about uh, the things that God creates show his glory. Well, uh, Isaiah 43, verses 5 through 7. Here God speaks through the prophet Isaiah and declares to the Israelites that he made them for his glory. And uh, starting verse 5, it says, Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, Give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory. I have formed them, indeed I have made them. That's Isaiah chapter 43, verses 5 through 7. Um, and, and there you see, you know, especially in verse 7, everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory. In Ephesians, that's that's the old, that was my example from the Old Testament. In Ephesians, uh, one, chapter one, verses three through six, in the New Testament, we see it says, "Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ, for He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before Him." He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. So here in Ephesians 1, you see Paul saying that um, Jesus chose us, chose Christians in him before the foundations of the world, um, and he predestined them. To, according to the good pleasure of his will, uh, to the praise of his glorious grace. So it seems like he created things, he created uh, Christians for his glory. Uh, finally, in, in uh, the New Testament, I wanted to show you from Romans chapter 11, verse 36. And this one's, <laughs> this one's pretty straightforward. Uh, here Paul says, For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Um, Paul saying that from God and to God are all things. Uh, to, to him be the glory forever. So uh, there's there's so your passages talking about how uh, God creates things for his glory. And 
of course, as we would expect, if God creates things for his glory, it's not a surprise to then see that the Bible talks about how the things that God creates display his glory. And I wanted to show you some examples here. There's more, like I said, but I was going to show you an example from the Old Testament. It comes from Psalm 19, verses 1 through 2. An example from the New Testament comes from uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. So here's the Psalm passage. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 2. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of His hands. Day after day they pour out speech, not after night they communicate knowledge. So Psalm 19, actually a very famous passage, talks about how the heavens themselves, uh, the universe that God creates, declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the, the work of His hands. So, uh, you know, basically talking about when you look up in the sky, when you look up at night and see the immense uh, stars in the universe God created, it's 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 speaking of God's glory. It's it's uh, it's communicating God's glory to us in some way. Uh, Romans chapter one verses eighteen through twenty one is a little bit longer, but let's see what Paul has to say about this. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse, for though they know, they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. We've actually looked at this passage before when we were talking about what happens to those who never heard the gospel, the uh, destiny of the unevangelized. So if you're interested in that question, you could go back to that uh, episode that we talked about there. Uh, but you see here, uh, obviously, this is saying that the world God created communicates his glory to his uh, to those he has created, to humans he's created. And not only should people realize that he is there and realize his power and his glory, but they should. But he is owed glory for that. So um, just another passage talking about how the world that God creates displays his glory. You know, so you know, if you um, if you're a Christian and you go to Sunday school this Sunday and you ask somebody why did God create. Uh, if someone's been churched or someone's brought up in the church or has been around the church for a while, you know, when we talk about a Sunday school answer, uh, sometimes it's kind of a, a term for uh, people just repeat things that they've heard in Sunday school, whether they understand it or not. Um, you know, it's a kind of a it's kind of a funny concept. So, but anyways, uh, the Sunday school answer a lot of times you ask someone, why did God create? They'll say God created things for his glory. And uh, although we Christians know this answer because it's been in the church, it's been a teaching of the church forever, because as we saw, the Bible teaches this all over the place. Uh, but a lot of people, although they, re they know the answer uh, and they're correct, that God created for his glory, uh, sometimes it, when you sit there and think about it, you know, some people might be like, you know, let's let's be analytic about it. God created. Uh, there's an all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing God, and He created the earth for His glory, created the universe for His glory. And you think, you know, that honestly, 
it sounds a little narcissistic. <laughs> Why would God create the world just for his glory? Like everything is a means to that. Well, I think a way to kind of make sense out of this concept, if you haven't thought about it that much before, is to kind of talk about some things that were going on in, in medieval Christianity. Uh, I'm a fan of the philosopher, theologian, uh, Thomas Aquinas from uh, medieval times. And uh, a question that he writes about, that, they, that he talks about in his writings, and other uh, medieval philosophers and theologians were wrestling with uh, back then, you know, it, around medieval times, 1100s, 1200s, um, was th- this was actually an issue that they were thinking about and dealing with in the academies. Uh, it, it was this question of why did God create anything, you know? And, and maybe a lot of us haven't even thought about this. Why did God create anything in the, in the first place? Uh, why would he do that? Uh, especially it was an issue for the medievals because uh, if, you, if, you learn, um, if you learn the history of philosophy, the history of theology, you'll know that the medievals thought of God as this, inf- I mean, you know, that's what we think of him today as well. Uh, but they were really into explaining this metaphysically. But uh, they they talk about they they all knew uh, they all believe that God is this infinitely perfect being, right? Uh, but if you think about what it would be like to be infinitely perfect, and also when you think about why human beings uh, act, why do we make choices? You'll see how attention comes into play. You know, so uh, ask yourself this: Why do you do anything at all? It's uh, uh, medieval. The medievals talked about, you know, as rational beings, we are always uh, desiring the good, right? Um, We eat because it's good. That's a good thing. If we're, you know, if we're hungry, that means we need sustenance, so we go get that. But uh, other things that are that are more like rational decisions, um, you know, why why are you why did you go to school? Well, it was to attain some good, right? You wanted to attain a uh, an education so you could get a good job. Uh, why do you go see a movie? Well, you're bored and you want to gain some new experience that's, that's entertaining or novel in some way. Uh, ultimately, everything that we do, all of our rational choices are to obtain some good or are the means or are the, are the means to some good ultimately down the line. Uh and I'm, you know, so like scratching your head because it itches, that's not like a rational choice. So we're not really talking about that. But most or all rational choices are aimed at attaining some good. But when you think about God, God is infinitely good. Uh, God is infinitely perfect, right? There is no knowledge that God needs to uh, gain. There is no new experience, no... Uh, no goodness that God needs. It's God is infinitely perfect. So it really created this tension. And, and medieval f- uh, philosophers and theologians were, were asking, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to explain why theism is rational, but we're saying that this infinitely perfect God created the world. And it doesn't seem like God would want to do anything because God is already perfect. So he wouldn't even need to create a world uh, that he doesn't need. Well, having said all that, a solution that they came up with was, well, they they said, well, well, let's think about all of God's attributes. It's not just that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, 
uh, it, it has to do with God's goodness, right? And uh, they looked out in the world and they thought about it for a while and they said, well, you know, we know that God is, is all loving too. That's something that the Bible teaches. That's something that we can actually kind of show using philosophy as well. God is all loving. And when they look out in the world, they see that love really isn't something that you want to just keep to yourself, right? <laughs> um, you never see someone just filled with love and they just want to treat that love like it's a, a really expensive diamond, you know, where they lock it away so only they can look at it. No, when you see love, people want to share love, right? Uh, when, you're, when you're full of love, you just want to help other people. You just want to hug other people, talk to other people. Uh, make sure everyone's doing all right. Uh, you know, even even like the, an exclusive love, even an exclusive love between a man and a woman, even that produces more goodness, right? Because you get kids out of that. And and then if you've ever had kids, you know that as much as you love your husband or your wife or or whatever you, uh, when you have kids, you're just like, wow, I didn't think I had any more love to give, and now I. I love this kid so much I just can't stand it and then you have another one and you don't you didn't realize that so much you know you've got as much love as for the first one as for the second one and and for your husband or your wife so you're just uh you're just like wow I just didn't know that love is just so abundant and that a finite person like me could have so much love well anyways uh the 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 medieval theologian philosophers were like love isn't something that just keeps to itself. So they thought, well, this this seems to be the solution to our issue. If God is all love, you know, he's he's not only infinitely perfect, but he's also infinitely loving. And uh, so that seems to uh, make it so that God would be inclined, not forced to, because we think that God has free will, but uh, God was inclined to create a world full of being. He wants to share his love, so he creates a world so that it would be filled with beings who could know and love him back, right? He wants to share his love. You can't share your love with just inanimate objects, right? If you're going to share love with something, it needs to be someone. It needs to be a person who can know you and love you back, right? Love is between two things, usually. So uh, their solution was God creates the world so so you know whenever you see the bible saying god creates for his glory that's basically another way of saying that god created the world so human beings could know him and love him and glorify him i mean he is infinitely perfect and he does deserve praise uh, because he's so awesome right (laughs) you you praise things that are awesome and god is infinitely awesome so but anyways if you know if you want to make sense out of that and, and make it not sound so narcissistic uh, why did God create? He created for His glory. Well, what does that mean? It means that God has created so that uh, so that human beings could know how awesome He is, but also uh, know how how you know all of His attributes. Right? Uh, God God made the world so that human beings, rational creatures, could know and love Him back. Okay, so that's that's the that's what we think. Uh, and you see it, like I said, you see it. The Bible seems to say this, and and when we use our our reasoning, when we just talk about philosophy, thinking about it, it also seems to confirm this, right? So, and when you look in the Bible, God created for His glory. You see this in two patterns: God creates things for His glory, and the things God creates display His glory. We're trying to make sense out of this philosophically. We we conclude that God created to share His love. 
Uh, to share love, God must create rational beings, and the purpose of these beings would be to know, freely choose, and love God. Now, notice already I'm talking about things that, that are involved with uh, theodicies, answers to the problem of evil. Uh, we're thinking that the only reason why God would create is to share his love with rational beings. Uh, but, right? And doesn't that make sense? Like, the reason why God makes rational beings with free will, the reason why God wants a world with free will, is because you can't love somebody. You can't be forced to love somebody. Love is a choice. You have to have free will if you're going to love somebody. So God basically, logically uh, needs to create rational beings if he wants to have a world uh, that's going to help him share his love, to spread his love, right? Um, so there, there's our discussion on God's purpose for creating. Now, um, that's why God created the world, and that's why human beings have free will. Now, uh, the second thing I wanted to talk about, though, is God's commands to humans. We, we, we want to think about what is humanity's role in creation. Creation exists to glorify God. And, uh, or, or another way of saying it is God created the world to communicate his goodness, to, sh to share his love. Um, well, what is humanity's role in all this? Because, of course, we exist and we have free will for that reason. But what is our role in that? What, what role do we play in this grand scheme of things? Well, uh, that's where we need to turn to the Bible and, and, and note some, some more patterns, okay? Now, one thing I wanted to do is recommend to you, and it's, and it's kind of advanced. It's a little more on the intermediate to advanced side. But I wanted to recommend to you this book that uh, kind of inspired me with a lot of the stuff I'm talking about called God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment, A Biblical Theology by James M. Hamilton, Jr., um, Dr. Hamilton talks about, in God's glory and salvation through judgment, a biblical theology, uh, Dr. Hamilton talks about what he thinks is basically the the major plot of the Bible. That what, what's If you could take one message from the Bible, what would it be? And he surveys the entire Bible and he finds this message he thinks that he sees throughout. It's a theme throughout the entire Bible. And he thinks that in every situation, the Bible is trying to teach us that uh, God is trying to uh, communicate who he is by allowing human beings to basically fall and then but he judges them but through the judgment he he provides salvation so anyways uh, I recommend that book it's really great if you want to help make sense out of the whole story of the Bible um, and I'm going to recommend some other books that are more on the beginner side but here's what we see. What is, what is humanity's role? Well, you see this. Uh, I think one of the best ways to see humanity's role is to, is to study the covenants that God makes with humanity. If you look throughout the Bible, you see that God makes many covenants. Um, I forget the total number, but it's like eight or nine. Uh, but you, you, God makes a covenant uh, with humanity in Eden. God makes a covenant with Noah. God makes a covenant with Abraham. Uh, with the nation Israel, there's a new covenant. There's a uh, he makes a covenant with David. I mean, there's there's many of them that you can study. But I wanted to focus on what he talks about in some of these more foundational covenants, okay? Because what you see is that God uh, wants humanity to spread across the earth in His image, okay? Um, I think we've talked about the image of God before. 
So I don't want to get into that. But I mean, but it, it, it totally goes along with what the Bible is saying, why God created. And it goes along with the philosophy. If things that God creates are for his glory, it makes sense that human beings are, are called being in the image of God, right? We're supposed to be God's representatives on earth. We're, we're supposed to do good because we're representing who God is in our very existence, in our being, in, in our choices and actions, right? Well, anyways, uh, in when God creates the first two human beings in, the, in Genesis 1, you see he tells them, and I was going to read uh, Genesis 1, 28. This is uh, what they call the Edenic Covenant. Uh, Genesis 1, 28 says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God is telling the first two human beings that they have dominion over the earth. They get to rule over it, similar to God having God being sovereign over the earth. But uh, they're supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, so basically he's telling them, spread over the earth in my image. Uh now, we're going to talk about the fall here in a second, but you see this similar command to human beings over and over and over. In Genesis 8, uh, when God flooded the earth and started over with Noah and his family, immediately Noah comes out of the ark. Here's Genesis 8, 15 through 17. It says, Then God spoke to Noah, Come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you, birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth. And they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. He basically repeated the same command to Noah and his family. Uh, then you get to the Abrahamic covenant later on in Genesis 12. Uh, this is where humanity is spread out, but God didn't want to destroy the whole. They're wicked again, but God doesn't want to destroy everybody like he did earlier. Now, at this time, instead of destroying everyone and starting over with someone, he chooses one nation to be to to spread his uh, to represent him to basically uh, follow his laws and show the world what it's like to 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 do what God wants you to do right. Um, well, uh, let's look at the Abrahamic covenant. This is in Genesis twelve verses one through three, and there's actually more to the covenant than just this verse. But anyways. Uh, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He wants Abraham to be fruitful, multiply, grow into a great nation, and then represent him to the world. Okay, so another example of, of spreading out in God's uh, image and bringing, and you see there at the last, it, it, through all that, he's going to bless all the peoples of the earth. Okay, now fast forward even further uh, to Jesus. Jesus comes, he is God in the flesh, and he dies on the cross for all of humanity's sins, and he makes it possible for... Uh, now, uh, instead of God being separated from humanity, like the, we were separated in the garden, now God indwells believers. So if you accept Jesus' death uh, for your sins and you tr uh, trust in him for salvation and you, and you, uh, you, you uh, commit to follow him for the rest of your life, 
the Holy Spirit indwells you, that God's presence is within you. And you are a believer. You're a part of the church, the body of Christ. Well, uh, you see a similar command being given to God's special people now, God's chosen people, the church. In Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus, it says, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Uh, Jesus is telling those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the church, uh, no one is... You know, no one is uh, perfectly formed into the image of Christ in this lifetime. No one's perfect, but if anyone is is uh, represents God, it's definitely the church in the church age. And Jesus is telling them to make disciples of all nations. In other words, spread the Holy Spirit as far as you can. Uh, make disciples of as many as people as you can all over the earth. It's a similar command like He gave to Adam and Eve, to Noah, to Abraham. Okay, so it's you see this this theme uh, of of God commanding humans to spread out over the earth in His image. Uh, and uh, another thing I wanted to point out to you, uh, and uh, that helps make sense of a lot of this. To really, I want to just drive home this point that uh, God's purpose for humanity is spread across the earth in His image. Uh, one thing that we kind of need to do is focus on God's the the biblical concept, the biblical theme of God's presence, and and look at some similarities between the Garden of Eden and the Tabernacle and Temple to help you uh, understand this. Uh, the, the thing is, um, I think that the earth, it seems like when you read all this, look at all the uh, what they have to say in biblical theology. To me, it seems like. God didn't create a worldwide paradise. You know, if you go back to what he said in Genesis, he says to subdue the earth. Uh, Genesis one twenty eight, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Well, if the earth is a worldwide paradise, then what is there to subdue? You know, if you look at the Hebrew in there, that word subdue is is used when it talks about uh, uh, kings conquering things. So it seems like God was giving Adam and Eve this kingly command to subdue the earth, almost like uh, the nation Israel going in to subdue the promised land. Well, anyways, it seems like God didn't create a worldwide paradise, and God's purpose for, for humanity was to consummate the earth, help God finish the, what he started by, by, making, by um, spreading across the globe in his image, in his presence, so that his presence would be everywhere and his image bearers would be everywhere, and it would end up being a worldwide paradise. Well, anyways, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me explain some of the stuff, and it helps looking at the similarities between the Garden of Eden and the Tabernacle later temple. Okay, It's, so, it's really interesting, and you see this in uh, books like the... Uh, you see this in books like God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment. I'm going to recommend a couple other books to you here in a second. Um, but uh, So here's some corresponding elements, some similarities between the Garden of Eden and the later tabernacle and temple of the Jewish people in the Bible. Okay, uh, We see all of these similarities. Uh, the, both Eden and the tabernacle temple were the unique dwelling places of God. Uh, 
and I, and if you're reading this, I don't think I have time to list off. I don't really have time to read all the passages. I'm I'm looking at a slide that shows all of the uh, verses that um, uh, that list where you can go look at these similarities. So uh, in the in the interest of time, I'm not going to read all the passages. I'm just going to name the similarities. But uh, if you're listening to this on a podcast, go to my YouTube channel. Just search for B. Kyle Kelts and you'll find it. Uh, and then you'll find all these episodes in video form. It's YouTube and, and, and other video sites. Uh, it, but if you're interested in that, go look for that list there. But uh, So let's look at these similarities between Eden and the later Tabernacle Temple. Both Eden and the Tabernacle Temple were u- the unique dwelling places of God. They both had holy trees or blooming lampstands within them. They both uh, had gold and precious stones. They were both entered from the east. They were both guarded by cherubim. They both had food and bread there. And they both had priests who works and keeps them. They, uh, they, or I should say a priest who works and keeps them. They both had rivers flowing out of them, and they were both on a mountain. We're talking about... Uh, descriptions, similar descriptions of the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle and the temple that that uh, Israel had later on. Okay, um, a book, a, a more beginner's book that, dis- that explains similarities between God's temple and Eden, and and talks about the implications this has for the for humanity and the church, is a really great book by G.K. Beale and Mitchell Kim. It's titled "God Dwells Among Us." expanding Eden to the ends of the earth, okay? Uh, that's a more beginner book, a more popular level book. If you really want to get advanced, then uh, pick up G.K. Beale's book titled The Temple and the Church's Mission, A Biblical Theology of the Dwelling Place of God. That's It's pretty advanced, pretty thick, and uh, you'll get lost in there if you don't have uh, training, seminary training. But I recommend both of them. They're amazing, and it, it really gets to the heart of what's happening in Genesis and, and, and explaining what we think the purpose and role of humanity is. Let me read to you a quote from the Temple of the Church's Mission by G.K. Beale. He says on pages 81 to 82, Because Adam and Eve were to subdue and rule over the earth, it is plausible that they were to extend the geographical boundaries of the garden until Eden covered the whole earth. They were on the primeval hillock of the hospitable Eden, outside of which lay the inhospitable land. They were to extend the smaller livable area of the garden by transforming the outer chaotic region into a hospitable territory. God's ultimate goal in creation was to magnify his glory throughout the earth by means of his faithful image bearers inhabiting the world in obedience to the divine mandate. Does that make sense? What we're saying is, it seems like since God is always giving these people, you know, because God was in their presence in the garden. He, he walked among them in the garden. After the fall, there's a little bit of separation. So God indwelt the tabernacle. God indwelt the temple. But there was separation there. And you could only go in. Only certain people could go in to talk to him. Only certain people could be in his presence and at only certain times of the year. But he still dwelled among them at least. But he was in the temple or the tabernacle. But anyways, throughout all this, wherever his presence is on earth, he's always telling them to spread out in his presence. Especially you get this message in Genesis. He he was in their presence and in their pre, um, you know, in um, among their midst, he wanted them to spread out over the earth in his image. 
And this was because they're his his, his image bearers. This is going to, in a way, uh, spread his glory that was in Eden all over the earth to multiply his image, multiply his glory, to consummate creation. He wanted human beings to learn from him, to, to commune with him as they consummated his creation. So that's what we think the mission of human beings is, okay? But if you are familiar with the Bible, you'll know that there was a <laughs> there was kind of a uh, a road bump here, the, uh, uh, an obstacle that really um, has huge implications for humanity, and that's the fall of Adam and Eve. That's when they sin and get thrown out of the garden, out of God's presence. Okay. Now, uh, before I talk about the results of the fall, I want to focus on what we think. Uh, confirm and and uh, reinforce what I just said about what God's plan was, okay? You know, because today we see death, disease, suffering, right? Um, what we're saying and what G.K. Beale and, and others think when we look at the purpose of humanity and the conditions in the Garden of Eden, we don't think the world was a worldwide paradise. We think the Garden of Eden was a paradise, and God wanted to expand that paradise uh, uh human beings were to walk alongside him and expand the gardens of the expand the borders of the garden of eden to cover the whole earth and to also cover the earth in his image bears multiply and be fruitful well um so we think that god basically wanted the entire earth to be like the paradise in the garden of eden but uh, human beings had to walk alongside him to help him make that happen. Not that he couldn't do it on his own, but maybe it was like this soul-making process. Uh, you know, his purpose of creating is to communicate who he is. So it sounds like in his infinite wisdom, he wanted human beings to walk alongside him as he taught them all about creation and all about himself as they consummated his creation with him. Okay. Um, and it was a paradise. Like, we don't think that they, they died. Like, we think Adam and Eve were maybe not naturally uh, immortal, but they didn't suffer. They were innocent. They were completely morally innocent. They didn't suffer. They weren't going to die. They were going to be in God's presence, and it was going to be amazing, and they were going to walk alongside him as they consummated the earth. Uh, and you can, and it seems like this is the case when you look at Revelation. When, uh, the book of Revelation written by the Apostle John, he talks about what the earth is going to be like at the end of days, right? So in Revelation uh, chapter 21, verses 3 through 4, it says, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. You see that uh, when you look at Revelation, it talks about how God's, God is going to join heaven and earth. There will be no more separation between God and man because God's special presence, just like it was in the middle of the temple, just like it was in the middle of the tabernacle, just like it was in the garden, his special presence is going to be everywhere, and he's going to, and human beings are going to cover the earth, the new heavens, the new earth. Uh, God's presence will be there with them, and there will be no death, no suffering. So we think that's this is what if if Adam and Eve had never sinned, we think that this is what would have basically happened. It would have looked like Revelation twenty one. But let's talk about the. Uh, Oh, and I wanted, again, I wanted to show you that, uh, to confirm this, 
look at the new how it describes the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation. And mainly you can get the description. I wasn't going to read all the passages again for time's sake. But if you read Revelation 21 and 22, that's where it describes the new heavens and the new earth. Then go and read the, the description of Eden in Genesis 2 and 3 and compare the two. You'll see there's corresponding elements here as well. Eden was the dwelling place of God, and so is the new heavens new earth. Uh, there was a, there's a tree of life in both places. There's golden precious stones. There's rivers flowing out, and they're both on a mountain. It, it's, it's, uh, so it seems like the conditions of Eden are going to be like the conditions of the entire planet. Uh, the, the new heavens and the new earth, when God refurbishes it, creates the new, new heavens and new earth. So we think that just like how Eden was a paradise, so also the entire new heavens and new earth will be a paradise. God will dwell there with his people. No one's going to die. There's going to be no suffering. It's going to be amazing. Okay, So that seems to be what would have happened if Adam and Eve wouldn't have sinned, uh, right? Uh, if Adam and Eve would have uh, fulfilled their role, fulfilled their mission without sinning, because, you know, there, as the, uh, and this kind of, uh, I've explained elsewhere in a blog post why I think, uh, why it makes sense why God would put a tree there uh, in the middle of the garden, you know, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, love, for, for one thing, takes, uh, love involves trust, right? And, uh, but also, uh, to be God's image bearers, God is righteous. God is uh, infinitely just and righteous and all good. Well, I mean, you know, you kind of need at least one rule for, for them to trust God. And also, if you're following the rules, that's a part of being righteous. Well, anyways, uh, God gave them this one rule and they couldn't, uh, they couldn't deal with it. They, they had to break it. But uh, the thing is, when, they, when, when Adam and Eve sin in the garden... They're no longer representing God, right? That, that's why uh, you can't be in God's presence as a sinner. He made you specific. First of all, he's holy and he can't, uh, he can't be in the presence of evil. But second of all, he made human beings specifically to represent him, specifically to glorify him. So a human being who sins is, you know, it's like a, it's like a, a printer that won't print. It's worthless. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, Adam and Eve sin, so God casts them out of the garden, and, and He places curses on 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 them and creation. But having said that, as we just saw, even though Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, they still had that mission that God had for them. He never rescinded the covenants from Eden, the the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. All those covenants he made with human beings where he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, um, all, uh, those were never taken away. So even though Adam and Eve and all of humanity were now cast out of God's presence, they could no longer be in his presence um, unless they did special things you know, to, to go uh, be in his presence in the temple or the tabernacle. Now they don't have God's help anymore, right? When you read the curses that God mentions in, I think it's in Genesis 3, uh, now uh, Adam and Eve still need to fulfill their mission, but now they have to. They just basically do it on their own terms, uh, not necessarily all their own terms. But you know what I'm saying? They don't have God's help anymore. You know, when, when you see, for example, it makes me think of when when you look at the nation Israel going into the Promised Land. They did that with God's help, right? We don't think that the nation Israel could have destroyed all those people uh, just by themselves with their own power. 
Well, same the same in the same way. We don't think that Adam and Eve and their and their descendants would have been uh, naturally possessed the abilities to do everything God wanted them to do in subduing the entire earth. We think it, if if they would have been acting in faith, uh, He would have helped them supernaturally. Uh, as he taught them about himself and he's taught them about the world as they spread over the globe, right? But whenever they get kicked out of his presence, they're basically on their own. The the, the curses that God talks about are all uh, really just uh, um, implications for them not being in his presence and not having his help as much. So uh, Adam and Eve are kicked out of God's presence because they're sinful human beings at this point, and now they still need to spread across the earth in God's image, uh, but uh, they don't have God's help anymore, right? They're not in God's presence. God's presence has a sanctifying effect. When you're not in God's presence, you a lot of times you just choose all the things that you want to do. When you're in, when you're in God's presence, just like you like if you're in the, you know if you think about like your grandmother, she's probably a lot of grandmothers are holy, right? <laughs> you get in the presence of your grandmother, you want to do good things. You don't want to. You don't want to say bad words. You don't want to do things that you know you, you think she would disapprove of. Well, imagine being in God's presence. You're not going to do bad things in God's presence. But when they're kicked out of God's presence, not only are they not in His sanctifying presence, but also they're basically on their own. You know, He talks about how family life at this point is going to be hard. Uh, working the ground is going to be hard. You have to do it yourself. It's not. You're not going to have His help anymore. Well, you can imagine that the world ends up like it is. All these free will beings not in God's presence, spreading out over the globe. They're mean to each other, and uh, they don't have God's help, so they're subjected to all of the quote-unquote natural evils like tornadoes and earthquakes and all that stuff that was naturally there. But God would have helped uh, iron out if, if uh, Adam and Eve would have uh, never sinned. But does that make sense? Basically, the results of the fall make sense out of why the world is the way it is today. Uh, if Adam and Eve would have never sinned, and their descendants would have never sinned, they would have eventually accomplished their mission with God's help, right? The world would look like the new heavens and the new earth by now. But human beings were cast out of God's presence. So instead of being in a sanctifying presence, instead of having his supernatural help, now they're doing bad things to each other because they're not in his presence. And they're subject to natural evils. They're subject to the way the world God created it. You know, um, when you look at that passage in Romans uh, talking about how the earth, uh, God's creation, displays his glory, it reminds me of some people who, some Christians who think that there was no death before the fall. I think there was no human death before the fall, but I don't, I think that um, God's goodness is perfectly compatible with animal death, right? Paul doesn't say that the world uh, communicated who God was up until the fall, you know, because some Christians say that uh, the world we're in now is fallen. They think that even like the very nature of some of these animals uh, changed at the fall. So maybe like uh, rabbits and wolves used to run together, but then after Adam and Eve, all Adam and Eve sinned, all of a sudden wolves grew teeth and got hungry, and they started eating the rabbits. And that's an evil thing for wolves to do, but it's a fallen world, so that's just what happens. You know, the thing is, Paul doesn't say that the world communicated who God was until the fall. He says that it's always communicated who God was. We're supposed to look at this world, even though it's got animals eating each other and it's got earthquakes and tornadoes, and we're supposed to not only know that God exists, know what God is like, that he's all good, all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving, 
but we're also supposed to glorify him for that. Paul doesn't mention that the world is evil and that it and that it's a bad, terrible place. The the evil in the world comes from human beings, right? We don't think that uh, God created it as a worldwide paradise. He thinks that we think that uh, the Bible indicates that the Eden was a paradise, and we needed to expand that with God's help. So, but if we don't have God's help anymore because we're out of His presence, uh, then we're naturally subject to all the uh, tornadoes and everything that that God was going to help us subdue with His help, right? So that explains natural evil. It explains moral evil. That's that's why the world is the way it is today. Okay, does that make sense? So when we go back to the problem of evil, the problems of evil that we discussed over the last two lectures, you know, we talked about the logical problem of evil. We talked about the evidential problem of evil. Um, I, I want to talk about how you could kind of use the Bible to explain why we think those problems of evil aren't problems. Okay. Now, before I do, though, I do want to make a, a point, okay? If, if, if you're a believer or if you're a non-believer and you look at the world and you think to yourself, something's wrong. This doesn't seem like how the world should be, especially if there's an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good God. Well, I just wanted to tell you that, especially if you're a believer and you and you think that it's maybe a bad thing to have this thought— it is. You're actually correct. <laughs> you're correct. When you look at the world and you say to yourself, this is not the way things should be, you're actually correct, right? Because when we look at the Bible, it says uh, Adam and Eve were created in this innocent state, in this paradise of, of a garden, and they were supposed to help God spread that. When we look at uh, Revelation 21, we see that God wants a world without any evil or death or suffering. So uh, our intuitions are correct when we look at the world and we think this is not the way the world should be. Now, one thing that we've emphasized before, though, is that if you're a non-believer, if you think that God doesn't exist and you look at the world and you say, this is not the way the, the world should be, well, that's actually that, that's not logically consistent with your worldview. If uh, there is no God and the world uh, formed randomly and life is a, is a mistake— uh, there is no purpose to the world. There is no telos of the world. There is no way the world ought to be. The world just is. So um, I think if you are a non-believer and you're looking at the world and saying, this is not the way the world should be, you should realize that the only way to make sense out of that is that if some being create, you know, if, if there's some uh, basis for goodness itself, if there's some being who created the world for a specific purpose and this is not living up to that purpose, does that make sense? Uh, if you go back two lectures before and, and listen to me talk about the problem of good, you'll see what I'm saying. But anyways, let's let, let's just examine these uh, problems of evil. This, the answers are similar, but I hope that the, the our discussion of what the Bible says about evil makes it even more comprehensive for you and, and maybe more satisfying. We talked about uh, with the logical problem of evil, right? This uh, logical problem that states God is omnipotent, God is holy good, evil exists. A good omnipotent thing eliminates evil completely. Uh, therefore, God's existence is logically incompatible with the existence of evil. Uh, what we took issue with is premise four. A good omnipotent thing eliminates evil completely. And I hope by now you realize that that is not a good premise. I mean, now, well, it is and it is not a good premise, right? The problem is the assumption that God, uh, an all-good, all-powerful, all-knowing God, would eliminate evil immediately. Um, 
the Bible now as a, and see and, and see what I'm doing here though the 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 logical problem of evil says that monotheism is internally incoherent. Well, um, I don't think that's the case, but Christianity certainly is not. That's not the case. Okay, you know, you take monotheism, you could have uh, uh, Ju- Judaism, uh, Islam, Christianity. They're all types of monotheism. But let's think about Christianity itself. And the logical problem is saying that this this worldview is internally incoherent. Well, guess what? Christianity teaches that God doesn't eliminate evil immediately. You know, the the very second that Adam and Eve sinned, if if God didn't um, allow evil whatsoever, He would have just annihilated them, right? But in but the and that's the thing. I think this is a huge. Uh, this is a huge omission from the discussion of in the problem of evil in the literature in the in the philosophy of religion is that God isn't. They always talk about the problem of evil in the in in light of or, or in just regarding God's uh, all powerful, all good, and all knowing. Well, guess what? The Bible describes God as so many more things. God is gracious. God is just. Right. In God's grace, he allows human beings to choose bad things. So uh, it's not logically incompatible with him to for him to allow evil to occur, right? But our intuition that he shouldn't, that he wants to eliminate evil is correct because the Bible says eventually he will, right? So that's why we're taking issue with premise four. God doesn't have to eliminate evil. In his grace, he can allow it. Because he he uh, he still shows his glory by providing salvation for those who deserve punishment. He shows his justice. He shows his glory. He shows his goodness throughout the whole thing. And his goal is to eliminate death, but he doesn't have to create the world in that uh, state. He can do it any way he wants. And uh, so yeah, just let me uh, um, read my slide here to to sum this up, and then we'll go on to the evidential problem. So God's purpose for creating was not to make a paradise free from death. His ultimate purpose for creating is to glorify Himself. So there's no logical contradiction with the existence of evil, uh, because the existence of evil doesn't contradict God's purpose. You know, when you see evil, um, it actually it it, it magnifies <laughs> excuse me it magnifies God's goodness all the more. Uh, God's ultimate plan does not include evil. God allows evil because of Adam and Eve's choice to disobey him. Evil is the byproduct of humans spreading across the earth without God's help and without his life-giving presence, and evil will ultimately be eliminated. Okay. Now let's talk about the implications that uh, the Bible and evil have for the uh, evidential problem of evil. Okay. If you remember this problem from the last couple lectures... It's it's the one it's the really wordy one. I'll just go ahead and read it one more time. Uh, there exist instances there exist instances of intense suffering which an omnipotent, omniscient being could have prevented without thereby losing some greater good or permitting some evil equally bad or worse. An omniscient, holy good being would prevent the occurrence of any intense suffering it could, unless it could not do so without hereby losing some greater good or permitting some evil equally bad or worse. Therefore, there does not exist an omnipotent, omniscient, holy good being. This whole argument is just making the point that if God was all good, all powerful, all uh, knowing, he would only allow evil if it uh, was for some good purpose. Like it eliminated some evil just as bad or worse, or it brought about a good that was equal or, or better. 
Okay, so uh, what this was saying, though, is that when you look in the world, it looks like there's gratuitous suffering, suffering that has no purpose, and there seems to be a lot of it. Therefore, God doesn't exist. Well, when we look at what we just said about the Bible and evil, and this is what we looked at also when we're talking about theodicies, uh, we want to take issue with premise one, that there exist instances of intense suffering, which an omniscient, omniscient being, an omnipotent, omniscient being could have prevented without losing some greater good or permitting some evil equally bad or worse. And, and, and what do we mean when we say that? Uh, when you look at what the Bible has to say about evil and God's purpose for creating, I, I think this leads to the conclusion that there is no gratuitous evil. Okay? Basically, all evil serves a purpose. And if that sounds... Uh, and, and, I, and I talked about that actually just a second ago. You might have paused and thought, what is this crazy person saying? But... What I'm saying is that I think that even terrible suffering, like a fawn burning to death in the woods, or um, some child being abused and then murdered, even these types of suffering, while we can't see it having a purpose, what it's doing though is it's bringing glory to God. And there, and and again, that might sound crazy, but what I'm saying is when you see something bad, you do like what we just talked about. You say, that's not the way the world should be. That's terrible. That's awful. Well, you can't really, like I said, you can't say that if there's no purpose to humanity, there's no purpose to anything, because that's that just is what it is. You can't say that's, that's the way it ought not to be, right? Because you can only say it ought not to be that way if it's objectively not supposed to be that way. Well, uh, when we see bad things, it glorifies God all the more because it can help us remember that, well, if we would have just done what God told us to do, the world wouldn't be like this. Does that make sense? Uh, so when we see terrible things, we can remember that if we did things the way God told us to do, that wouldn't be the case. And it also just shows, yeah, when, when you're not in God's presence and he's not helping you, this is just the way the world is. Now, if you don't believe me, then I hope that you'll believe the Apostle Paul, okay? He talks about a similar concept that I think basically uh, supports what I'm talking about. If you read Romans chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, it says, But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I am using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim, we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come, their condemnation is deserved. Okay? What Paul is saying is that when people do bad things, that glorifies God. Because you, when you see evil for what it is, you think, ooh, that's not the way the world ought to be. And you think, and you can also remember, well, if I just did what God commanded me to do, if everybody did what God commanded us to do because he knows us and loves us and wants the best for us, the world wouldn't be like that. God is good. God is, is, is loving and the source of all wisdom and knowledge and righteousness. So when we see unrighteous things, that glorifies him because it, we see that's not the way it should be, right? But then some people take this and say, okay, well, let's glorify God all day by doing terrible things. Well, Paul says, no, 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 no. Because uh, when you do bad things, that glorifies God, but that doesn't mean you ought to do bad things, right? And why is that? It's because human beings are made in the image of God, and our very purpose is to represent God, and God is a good God. 
So when we do bad things, we are sinning. We're not doing what we ought to do. Even though it glorifies God, that's not what we ought to do, right? So um, what I'm saying, though, is that, you know, we said that human beings experiencing natural evil, we experience hurricanes and tornadoes because we don't have God's help because we got kicked out of the garden, right? So when you, when a tornado hits your house or a tornado hits your your church, you can just think, well, if we would have been doing good, the the world would look like the new heavens and new earth by now and we this wouldn't happen. And it all and it's all due to human sin. Or, or you can think when people kill each other and torture each other, it, it glorifies God because you can think, you know, if we would have just do what God said to do, we would, we would love each other and, and we would love God and everything would be great, right? Uh, so so, but even that, in, even those instances of suffering and and, and death and privation and uh, all of that brings glory to God. So, what what we're saying is that premise one in the evidential problem of evil is not correct because all uh, instances of evil in this world glorify God in some way. Okay, and my slide says evil actions glorify God because they highlight God's infinite goodness. However, evil actions are worthy of punishment because humans are supposed to reflect God's goodness. God's ultimate plan does not include evil, and this is pretty much what I said in the last one. But God allows evil because of Adam and Eve's choice to disobey him. Evil is the product of humans spreading across the earth with God's help and without his life-giving presence. Evil will ultimately be eliminated. God's purpose for allowing people to do evil for, of their own free will is to emphasize his goodness. So, no instance of evil is without a purpose. Right? So um, so that that's how we would answer the evidential problem, using what the Bible is telling us. You know, so you talk about the logical problem of evil, the, the evidential problem. Uh, basically, the answer to the logical problem is that evil w- would be completely eliminated um, uh, if, if human beings uh, would have done what God asked them to. But, you know, you, you can really see strands of all these theodicies in the biblical answer, right? Uh, God's purpose for creating is to glorify himself, so he needs to create rational beings who have free will. So you got the free will defense in there. Uh, God created Adam and Eve in this in the Garden of Eden and asked them to, or commanded them to, uh, walk alongside him as they spread his paradise and his presence all over the globe in his image. Uh, that's kind of like a soul-making theodicy. It wasn't just enough for God to make a paradise and put people in it. Uh, he wanted them to learn about him and to walk with him and learn about creation all at once uh, and learn about each other and, and do it all in communion and, and in relation with him. But we messed it up. But even when we mess it up, that still glorifies him. So it's not a li- it's not contradicting his purpose for creation. His purpose isn't to make a paradise for everybody. That That is the means to, to us living in his presence forever. Uh, he does want a he does want a, um, a a new heavens new earth without death and evil, but uh, that his purpose is to glorify himself and to communicate who he is and to create people to know and love him. So when evil exists, that doesn't necessarily contradict his purpose, right? So uh, with with the logical problem, we take issue with it with it entailing that God must eliminate evil uh, now, and with the the evidential problem. Um, we say that there is no evil that occurs without a good reason, right? Now, having said all this, I, I, uh, maybe you can't even sit there and explain to that some it's to someone in one sitting uh, while they're suffering. But I did want to mention some pastoral concerns. You know, we we I've I've talked about this uh, earlier in the lecture, 
some philosophers make a distinction between a logical answer to the problem of evil and a pastoral answer. Now, maybe, yeah, if someone is going through some suffering, maybe you don't want to just sit there and explain to them what happened in the garden and the, the similarities between the tabernacle and the temple and the Garden of Eden and, and God's purpose for creating and God's plan for humanity and the if events, the effects of the fall. Maybe you're not going to explain all that. Maybe it wouldn't make them feel uh, all that much better. And to be honest, uh, I've been really sick before. I've injured myself. <laughs> I've, I've been uh, mourning before. And I tried to think of those things. And it <laughs> thinking about everything I know didn't necessarily make me just feel cheerful in the moment. I'll tell you that. Uh, but I think there's some good lessons we can take from this. And maybe some things that can help people feel better. I mean, I'll be honest, like some people talk about a pastoral answer to the problem evil that's going to, I don't think there is any magical solution that's going to, you know, you have a friend or a family member die and then someone mentions this pastoral answer to the problem evil and all of a sudden you just cheer up. It, it's our it's our human nature to mourn. We, 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 we get sad when we lose loved ones. You know, um, I, I wanted to mention, I think I have this on the next slide. The thing is, uh, so I think some people in the history of Christianity have argued that uh, since it's you know since God is sovereign, if a family member dies, that must have been a part of God's plan. So you shouldn't get sad. For one, you should know that 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 family member hopefully went to heaven. But also, you should just know that 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 was God's will. So you shouldn't be sad that you lost them because now that was God's will. So you're basically you're basically getting upset because of what God wants and you shouldn't do that. So it's wrong. But I just want you to know it is entirely okay to, to mourn when someone dies. Now, as Christians, we are, we are not without hope, right? So you always want to remember that sometimes, you know, people actually Christians celebrate when people die because they know now this Christian who passed on is in the presence of Jesus and they will no longer suffer like we do here on earth. But having said that, it's still perfectly okay to mourn loved ones. And why is that? Because your will matches God's will in this in this instance. Some people were saying, oh, well, you know, you're going against God's will. No. God wants to be with us forever, and we want to be with our loved ones forever. But in, in this earthly life, right, uh, before Jesus comes back in the new heavens and new earth, whenever we lose someone, we can't be with them for a while. But our will matches God's will. We want to be with our loved ones. God wants to be with his loved ones too. So our will is the same, and that's why you're so sad when you lose someone because you can't be in their presence for a while. But you eventually will. But uh, anyways, it's perfectly okay to mourn, okay? Uh, but I wanted to talk about some pastoral concerns, right? What we're saying is we can we can explain why there's evil in the world, but this still leaves this question, right? Well, why did God allow... I know why evil exists in the world, but why did God allow this particular evil to happen to me? Or why did God allow this particular evil to happen to my loved one at this particular time? The problem with that is that we really don't have an answer to that. Why did God allow my loved one or me to hurt in this particular way at this particular time? Um Sometimes there's just not an answer to it, and and but I think that using what we've looked at and and also looking at the Bible, what Bible has to say in regard to Job can help us. Okay, so I, I want to explain this, and maybe you can use this to help uh, yourself or loved ones as you're going through suffering. 
Now, you look at the story of Job, it's really intense suffering, right? Job loses all of his children and all of his possessions in one day, and then he gets sick. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I don't even want to imagine thinking about that. I've got two kids and a wife. We've got a, a house, right? I can't imagine losing my house all in one day and everything else I own. And I don't even want to try and think about losing my kids on the same day. But I've always just, it's always amazed me what happens with Job, right? Um, after doing all this, of course he mourns, but after immediately after losing all of his children and all of his possessions, he worships God. You see in Job chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, it says, this is right after Job just learned that he lost everything. The only thing he's got is, <laughs> is his wife and some tattered clothes. It says, Then Job stood up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshipped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Job just lost all of his kids, all of his possessions, and he worships God. And I always thought about that, and I thought, how in the world can Job worship God and I think, but I think the answer comes from what we just looked at with the Bible and what it has to say about evil and everything. Okay, you know when we when we uh, or let's say, you know, I think the intuition that God should eliminate evil immediately is actually a good one. If God is all powerful, He's got the power to do it. If He's all good, He shouldn't want evil at all. But remember, God is a gracious God. I think one thing that we forget about is that those people who say that God should eliminate evil completely, there's two there's two considerations that we should think about. One is if God eliminated evil completely, he would have eliminated Adam and Eve immediately. He would eliminate Noah and his family immediately. So none of us would be here right now. When you ask for a world without any moral evil in it, you're asking for a world in which you wouldn't exist. Does that make sense? Um, you know, looking at all the evidence that we looked at, we would assume that the Bible is true, right? But we've got episodes on that. All the episodes leading up to Jesus being God and, and the Bible being inspired. So if we think that, uh, uh, like I do, that Genesis is history, right? It says that Adam and Eve are the first two people. And Eventually, it bottlenecked, though, because God eliminated everybody but Noah's family. So everybody alive today would, would uh, come from Noah and his family, right? But if Adam and Eve would have been killed because they did evil, then uh, Noah would have never been born, and his family would have never been born, and none of us would have ever been born. If Noah and his family were eliminated the second that he sinned, none of us would be here right now, right? So if, when you ask for a world without moral evil in it, you're asking for a world in which you don't exist, I hope we, we we realize that. But also, forget about what's happened in the past. If I want a world where God eliminates evil completely, then I'm asking for God to destroy me. You know, I, I it's the Bible says that all people have sinned, and I don't think it's hard for anybody to realize that, yes, if there's this all-good God, I have sinned against that God because we've all done bad things that we know are bad in our heart. So if God eliminates evil completely, that means that God should destroy all of us right here and right now. But he doesn't, does he? Because he's gracious. And I think that's what's happening with uh, Job. He is being appreciative of God's grace. 
Every second that God allowed Job and his family to exist and have the possessions they did was a second of grace and love. And Job was a what he was saying is that he was he appreciates the time he had with his family because it was all grace from God and it couldn't have happened without God's goodness and he's appreciating the stuff he had uh, because that couldn't come apart from God's gracious and goodness so he's saying look God gives and he takes away but I'm so thankful for God for the time he gave me with my family and I'm so thankful for the time that God gave me with my stuff right um eventually he faces God and God basically says, look, you want to know why I let this happen to you at this time in this place? You could only know that if you knew what it took to create and sustain uh, all of creation and to, to be the author of all history. But since you don't know that, then you just can't understand why, I, why bad things are happening. And, and that's what I just think that we can take away from what the Bible is saying, right? Um, you know, maybe you lost a loved one and watched him or her suffer before they died. Uh, maybe you've, you've lost things or, 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 or lost your job or been sick or any number of things. I think what the Bible is teaching us, right? When we see these terrible things happen, we say, that's not the way the world ought to be. Does God even exist? Does God even care? Well, God does care. The whole reason why that's allowed to happen is because of God's grace. He's He's long-suffering, and he's letting these things happen because he's redeeming his people all throughout it. He doesn't eliminate evil because he's loving and gracious. He he's he allows evil, but he, he for his glory, he provides a means of salvation and redemption for people anyways. It, it This necessarily entails that we're going to go through bad things. We're going to go through physical suffering. And we're going to go through moral evil. We're going to make cho- bad choices ourselves. And we're going to suffer the results of bad choices. But we should be grateful for every second of it. Not grateful for the suffering. Obviously, that's bad, right? But grateful that we can even compare this suffering to the other good times in our lives. Um. So, you know, as God brings humanity through this corporate soul-making process, it's different for everybody, right? And even, you know, some kids die before they're even born, so they don't go through soul-making. What we're not saying is that God's purpose for every individual is to go through a soul-making process. But what I'm saying is that if if you do go through suffering, you can still praise God because that suffering highlights... God's goodness, God's graciousness, and you can still be thankful for all the times that you had with your good things and with your 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 loved ones and you can hope in God. You because you know, <clears throat> excuse me, because you know that God has promised that these things will eventually go away and you will be with your loved ones, you will be in God's presence and there will be no death and suffering. Uh God's uh because of God's work, humanity's purpose will be fulfilled, and there will be a new heavens and new earth. There will be no evil, and um, and you'll you won't suffer anymore. So you can be thankful for the good things that God has given you in the past, and you can be hopeful for the good things that God has in store for you in the future. Okay, so I hope that helps. Um, 
let me know in the comments or in an email if you have any other questions. I am a, more of a philosopher, so I'm not I don't have a, a experienced much pastoral experience. So you know I'm, I I can like pat people on the back and say they're there. But uh, other than what I, I've, I've looked at through the Bible and all this, I, I, I can't usually uh, help people all that much. Uh, but uh, I hope that these concepts can help you maybe uh, through your own suffering, but maybe also help you uh, help others as they go through suffering. And I, and I hope at least that this has given you a bit of a uh, taste of, of what we think uh, makes sense out of why there's so much evil in the world, even though that uh, all good, all knowing, all powerful God exists. Um, I wanted to uh, go ahead and let's see. Yeah, let me let me. Uh, I forgot to put my slides at the end here. Let me go back to our questions for reflection, and then I'll uh, finish this out with our quote, and then we'll be done with this lecture. So our questions for reflection are: What did you think of the soul-making theodicy? Number two. After learning about the various theodicies, do you have any questions left over why God would allow evil? And three, some people think that God doesn't exist because bad things are happening right now. How does the fall of Adam and Eve explain why bad things are happening today? So I've got a new quote for us. It's uh, by astronomer uh, and apologist uh, Dr. Hugh Ross. He says, and this is, uh, this is a quote from his uh, website, reasons.org. He says, the God who inspired the Bible is the same God who made the universe, earth, and all life. This God is the very definition of truth. Therefore, nature's record will never contradict Scripture and vice versa. Uh, that's, our, that's our quote because we're going to be moving on into faith and reason and scientism. But as always, before we close out, I wanted to say a few words to recommend to you Southern Evangelical Seminary and Bible College. Uh, their website is ses.edu, and I highly recommend SES. Uh, it is a great seminary. Uh, it has uh, on all of their programs are offered online, and they have uh, things as little as certificates, all the way to bachelor's degrees, to master degrees, and PhDs. You can study theology, philosophy, apologetics, biblical languages. Uh, you name it. You can get a Master of Divinity so you can become a pastor and, and minister to people. And they put a high emphasis on apologetics and defending the faith. Um, I recommend it. I, that's where I went to seminary. And if you are interested more in uh, the problem of evil or any of these apologetic topics, um, I would highly recommend going to Southern Evangelical Bible College and Seminary. Uh, it's in Matthews, North Carolina, but all their programs are online as well. Uh, and I also want to recommend to you Kingdom Preparatory Academy. Uh, Kingdom Preparatory Academy is a classical Christian school in Lubbock, Texas. Uh, it's where my kids go, and we love it. It's a classical school, so it's the classical model where they teach your kids how to think, not what to think. And it's all done in, uh, the, in, uh, in the context of a Christian worldview. Um, I highly recommend Kingdom Preparatory Academy. Their website is kingdomprep.org. If you're looking for a classical Christian alternative to education in the Lubbock, Texas area, uh, go to their website, shoot them an email, give them a call. We'd love to see you drop by and uh, pay us a visit. And um, yeah, it's a great school. It's all the way from uh, pre-K to 12th grade. So I highly recommend Kingdom Preparatory Academy. I'm looking forward to the next couple uh, lectures. We're going to be talking about faith and reason. We're going to talk about scientism. So I'm looking forward to seeing you there, and I hope you have a great day.